In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So we make sure that at least once a season on rector's cupboard, we bring in a good friend of ours named David Goa, who is, uh, well, we refer to him as an Orthodox theologian, like Christian Orthodox theologian. Um, David has been a friend of the show and a friend of each of us and a good help in terms of the spiritual life. And recently I was speaking with David about a number of things, just a phone conversation, and he asked me this. He said, Todd, what do you think of the situation in Israel and Gaza? And as you can imagine, those who are listening, um, that's a, a loaded question. Not loaded from David, but it's become a loaded question, kind of how do you speak about such things? And so uh, Allison and I speak with David Goa in this episode of Rector's Cupboard, and we talk about that. David's response, I responded to him, and then he responded to that uh, on that phone call. And his response included something that I thought was difficult to hear, but beautiful, um, about the nature of evil, and about cultural trauma. How do we make sense of these things? So uh, it would be possible, I suppose, I'm not thinking of anything in particular, but it would be possible to, as we have this conversation that does touch on Israel and Gaza and the current circumstance in the world, it'd be possible to think, oh, that thing is terrible that was said there, or that's inappropriate here. I, although I can't think of anything in particular. So... Um, we want to bless you as you listen. Uh, I th- we think that there'll be some things that are really helpful for you in this. And you'll see why, as I mentioned off the top here, that David Goa has become a friend of the show, a spiritual friend. So thanks so much for listening, and we hope that you um, get some positive things out of this conversation. Well, we are pleased all the time. Hi, Allison. Allison is here. Hi, Todd. We're pleased... Anytime on Rector's yes. Cupboard that we get to speak to our friend, and, and we kind of see him as a spiritual advisor, both personally and then to our work, and that is our friend David, David Goa, Goa, who we've introduced here many times before and have prior to this recording interview. Uh, so hi, David. Hi, David. Great to see both of you. Yeah. How are you in Edmonton? You're looking yourselves. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> as are well, you. Edmonton, Edmonton is lovely because we had a a dusting of snow and we finally gotten around a winter it was ridiculously warm and yeah. as a result i was afraid that maybe people from ontario would move here <laughs> that is a concern yeah. but they're going to Kelowna, i think <laughs> so, yeah no david thanks for joining us we're pleased anytime that you do you've been such a good friend and great company um just in terms of friendship but also kind of spiritual friendship or i'll say like theological friendship yeah sure uh introducing us to others and uh really helping us out in many of the things that we think through and hopefully we help others to do the same we thought we'd i thought we'd start off with kind of a bit of a heavy topic and conversation sure so when you ask if you were to ask like here we have david as our friend and spiritual advisor kind of a pastoral role when you ask how is everybody doing uh, if you were to ask that culturally right now, we're going to face a number of things that are going on in the world. And one of them that I know particularly, Only Allison, one, for yes. you and I, we don't have anything to do with this in in most regards. Like we, we're not invested and we're not from this side or the other side in terms of Israel and Hamas and mm-hmm. what's going on. But we see the cultural implications even here, even in Vancouver. So just yesterday. Well, yes, and people that we care about are. Right, and definitely people that we care about are. And just yesterday, um, there was a minister in the provincial government here in BC. She was the minister of uh, post-secondary education. And she resigned over some comments that she had made um, in a, Benai Brith, I think, uh, is that how I say it? Um, 
B'nai B'rith. B'nai B'rith, thank you. Uh, gathering online that she had said that until Israel was, modern day Israel was created as a nation, that part of the world was just an empty piece of land. And she said things that well, were a little, little more derogatory the, than that. Yeah. And she has since resigned, but it took like four or five days. And, and that showed the lines here. So that's someone resigning over something that she said about, um, about the Palestinians. Um, but we've seen other examples and CBC and other news outlets here in Canada have covered when people have, and it's happened in the United States as well, yep. when people have uh, had to leave a post or, or they've been told they wouldn't be considered for law school or something because they have made comments that are being interpreted as, as anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic or yeah. anti-Israel, but more than that, anti-Semitic. Um, and so this has become an issue of cultural disturbance and cultural trauma. And David and I have spoken about this just on the phone um, a while back. And so, David, I know you've done some thinking and work on this, and maybe just as we intro this idea, um, how have you been experiencing this kind of cultural disturbance or cultural trauma? Where has it come across your landscape, um, theologically, spiritually, culturally? Uh, let us know. Well, I mean, it's um, heartbreaking. Yeah. All of it is heartbreaking. It's important to always remember the faces of people, the faces of Israelis, Jews, the faces of people in Gaza, mm -hmm. a few Christians that are left, the Muslim population there, the faces of Palestinians in various places around the world and Jews in various places around the world. So it is, um, it's first and foremost heartbreaking. I, I had the privilege of knowing uh, the son of the mayor of Gaza. His grandfather was also the mayor of Gaza, and one of his ancestors sat in the Ottoman parliament <clears throat> back in the Ottoman Empire days. His name was Ali Shawa, and Ali lived here, and uh, I got to know him well and took care of him a fair bit, actually, at the end of his life and was there when he departed this world. And so I think of Ali because he grew up in Gaza and he um, felt the pain of it all. His family home was a place where all the, all the leadership of um, under the British mandate and all the leadership of the various Arab countries had been in his home. Uh, the early uh, Jewish, uh, or pardon me, Zionist uh, Israeli politicians were all in their home. And his father had always taken him to to Christian services on Easter and Christmas in Orthodox and Catholic uh, churches in Gaza. So I think of Ali in the midst of all this and the church that the mosque that he went to and it shared a wall with an Orthodox church. It was built by his ancestor deliberately to share a wall between the Orthodox wow. Christian community and the Muslim community that was bombed here recently. So it's heartbreaking. Mm. When, when I saw what unfolded on October 7th, <clears throat> within a day or two, I called because I, I know uh, mm. Jews and Muslims with connections to Gaza and who care about it. So I, I called them you know, speechless as we are in the face of such things. Uh, but I suppose I called to share silence with them or just express a little bit of solidarity. And over the next, over a couple of days, I talked with, um, with colleagues and friends that I've known for a long time and talked with about these issues over time. But it was uh, different than mm -hmm. any conversations I think I've had before, although I've recognized these moments in, in human history, mm -hmm. uh, moments where there is nothing that can be said, moments where you need to either be in silence or just not participate. <clears throat> but I knew them well, so I called. And um, it sent me into a bit of a, I mean, I 
I've had my share of depression over the years, but it sent me it sent me into a, a bit of a dark place for a few days because these very good people, such good people, they um, on all sides of this, they were all absolutely right in what they said. All sides were absolutely right. And they were all righteous in what they said. Deeply, deeply righteous. And standing on that ground with rage, I suppose, inner rage. And it it led me to think, because I haven't thought a lot about evil in the past, um, thought about sin a little bit, mm. but evil, I haven't thought a lot about evil. <clears throat> but it made me think that maybe this is the landscape of evil. Mm. It is the landscape that comes to be when everybody is right and everybody is righteous. And in that landscape, there is no word that can be heard. It seems to me there's no word that can be spoken because a spoken word that isn't heard is not the word. Certainly not what we mean by the word when we use that treasured, wonderful image from the Christian tradition. And then I remembered Dante and how that deepest rung in hell mm. is the frozen world, is mm. the world in which there is no movement, there is no possibility of reaching out, there is nothing but a locked and frozen eye. And, um, I mean, it reduces you to tears. So it's been uh, troubling, and I continue to talk and think with some people a little bit about it, but the thinking is just not on. So um, it's one of those times when we, uh, I guess we make the sign of the cross. And I normally don't do this but hmm. you say lord have mercy yeah i mean i say lord have mercy in the liturgy all the time yeah, of course. but i don't mean it in quite this way yeah. but of course the deepest meaning of that is please pour somebody pour the oil of gladness on a situation pour healing oil on this so that something can become supple enough again so we can actually talk with each other yeah i, I think that's a really Beautiful, beautiful, yeah, way to talk about this really difficult, terrible circumstance that it feels like the entire world is locked into. And I I appreciate what you say about that it, it's almost, I've felt it as well, that, that words that I've said in, in church services, in liturgy, they they are alive in a way now in ways that that i don't recall them feeling quite so um mm. like i took a, a course on psalms and trauma in january and yeah there's there's a lot of those words that feel a little different in the aftermath of yeah. well the continual aftermath of the last yeah. several months yeah. It's interesting, right? Because you, I mean, we use a word like trauma and even saying cultural trauma around these matters. And anytime we use a word like trauma, we're mindful of the fact that right now people are experiencing trauma like beyond what we could imagine at yeah. times. Or, And you can't put these things on that kind of um, measurement scale, so to speak. But um, Lord have mercy. I picture David, you, and, and uh, the beauty comment I appreciate too, because it's one of those things that like, if it's beautiful it's and like it is beautiful, it's like beauty. The, be the beauty of sorrow, right? Yeah. The kind of, uh, you know, you've touched something real, but 
there's a so what to it that the pain is still there, the suffering is still there, and it and in some ways things are still getting worse. And so I picture David, you walking in Edmonton or wherever it is, or us here in Vancouver, any city in the world, or mo- many cities in the world, where there might be a rally, let's say. And uh, um, we've seen probably more more coverage of the pro-Palestinian <laughs> rallies that at times have uh, led to difficulty in terms of how people have seen them or whatever um yeah, university although, campuses whatever it is yeah or there I've are seen rallies lots of very yeah. very not exactly exactly and rallies on the, rallies from or, from the other perspective yes. um we remember that our friend rabbi laura here in vancouver reminded us that things aren't nearly as polarized over there actually that the, the sometimes the polarization is in people taking yeah, stances and opinions far from the yeah. issue but you walk by one of those those gatherings of people and i then hear this prayer in your spirit lord have mercy because one of the things that i really like what you say about this um fixed nature frozen nature from dante but when everyone's right and everyone's righteous, you you can't say anything, which I think has then on a yeah, small it, level. Yeah, it like defies logic. People have felt that. Like, what am I supposed to say? Yeah. If I say the wrong thing, I'm going to get in trouble. Either either side, either perspective, or whatever. Even even if you're trying to say something edifying, um, you might find yourself in that trouble. But it makes perfect sense when you know David when you characterize this as you do. I'm interested in this. I really, the first time you told me this too, you mentioned um, that you don't think about evil that much. Um, Is part of the kind of emotional or spiritual angst or anguish that you feel, you mentioned like feeling kind of depressed about this or more than kind of, is part of that anguish that there are times when we are almost like forced to think about evil? What, What is it about what is it about thinking about evil that is so troubling? Well, part of it is my tradition of the guardianship of the mind. That is um, mm. what you think about is so easy to ingest. And it's so easy to, to uh, for it to color the way you see life, the way you see the world. And my own sense is that, um, you know, in part of that, part of the richness of the Christian tradition, it understands these things in a multivalent way. But one way in which evil is understood is, of course, of the absence of God, the absence of good, the absence of life, the absence of relationship. And um, I haven't seen that very much in my life. I mean, I've I've marveled at how some people can walk upright in the world, given what they faced in their life. But I wasn't in that with them. And when I talked with them, I was always amazed that the capacity of human beings to To not be captured by uh, mm. degradation. So mm. <clears throat> I, I also, I suppose, uh, have a, a bit of a prejudice, perhaps, that's developed later in my life. I grew up, of course, with the richness of the Lutheran tradition, mm. and the Lutheran tradition. Um, really preferences the apostle paul i think sometimes we read paul through that we read the gospels through the lens of paul Hmm. just many muslims read the quran through the lens of a hadith and also lutherans have a very vivid sense of the prophets and the prophetic literature i think protestantism in general tends to highlight the the prophets and and i certainly Loved, loved that, still do. I mean, mm. Jeremiah, Isaiah, yeah. Isaiah, Amos, my my Lord. They're so amazing. But we, 
we often forget that within the Jewish tradition, you had a guild of prophets and a guild of priests. And that the capacity to make critique, the capacity to read the riot act to your own priesthood or to your own king or to the one that enslaved you, the capacity to do that and do it healthily was deeply dependent upon having drunk deeply at uh, the priestly part of the faith, which is its wonder, mm. its capacity for a language of wonder and regard, singing praises. Uh, In wisdom hath you made it all. Glory to thee, O God. So that's a that's something that I think more recently in my life, that is a number of years ago, but has come more into the into the center for me. And as a result, when I see things that maybe some would characterize as evil mm. or certainly as something that they want to oppose, I want to try and uh, see if I can apprehend what's behind that. What's what's led to that? and not to allow the dis-ease mm. to define what in fact may be going on. So I think that's it's sort of very, think very thoughtfully said. You, you mentioned as well, though, that and then you, I mean, my sense of it was that you in some ways emerged from that initial intensity of, of those feelings of depression. Or, uh, and that, you then were given a bit of a place to help others somewhat understand. And you mentioned to me kind of the untying of knots in this. It was fairly um, practical. Thank you. What kind of knots do you think have to be untied (laughs) or, or shouldn't say have to right? that, but what kind of, what kind of knots could be untied that we could think better through these things? Well, first of all, I certainly have had no sense that, um, I'm in any position to help anybody who is dwelling in one of these silos of being right. I mean, I, I just think that we're still at a place, maybe, I don't know, maybe some people can, but at least in my relationships, I've not had a sense that there is much that can be said. There is one rabbi in New York that I talk with, and we can talk together, but he's also very critical of the Israeli state. Mm. <laughs> Um, I, I, you know, every once in a while, there are things that emerge that, that I, I sense are, are grave, so grave that maybe we should try to uh, unwrap them a little bit, not with the people at the center of it, although I think we all participate in this, but with the general public. So, I mean, I, I do Mm -hmm. these philosopher cafes every month and, um, So I decided to do a couple of them on Gaza and on what has unfolded here. And I decided to do it simply as in a way to try and respond a little bit, at least in the context of other people that are baffled and trying to figure it out and what's going on here and why is Israel like it is? Why are the Palestinians like they are? You know, that sort of thing. So, I mean, I've done a fair bit of work on these matters over the years. So I gave some thought to it, and it occurred to me that maybe it would be helpful for people who are not who are not immediately tied into this right. to learn a little bit about what I call the three knots that we need to untie in order to even begin to understand. So the first knot is, I'll frame it as questions. What is the relationship? between Judaism, the covenant, you are to be a holy people and a nation of priests. What's the relationship between Judaism and Zionism? Mm -hmm. Zionism, born in the 19th century. I did some work in Lithuania in the Jewish community, which was called the Jerusalem of the North. And It's one of the birthplaces of of Zionism, Mm -hmm. which was largely secular, atheist, intellectual Jews, artists, marvelous people who wanted to create a transnational 
uh, body so that they could resist anti-Semitism a little bit. But initially, they didn't have the notion of Eretz Israel or a land of Israel. That came along later. I didn't know so that. what is the relationship between being a nation, a holy nation, a nation of priests, and having a modern secular state mm. with no boundaries, and oddly enough, given that most of the leadership is atheist and has been since its beginning, oddly enough, with a litmus test around who your mother was. She had to be Jewish, then you could come and live there. So that's an, a use of Judaism in an extraordinary way and very deliberate way. So that's the first knot. The second knot is, what's the relationship between Hamas and Islam? Um, Hamas, of course, is... Uh, is a, a movement, a part of, we've seen many of these movements in, uh, in recent years, uh, which seek to express um, the need for liberation on the part of the Palestinians. And obviously that's easy to understand. Mm -hmm. It's uh, clearly a huge matter. But when we look at what unfolded on October 7th, um, a couple of things happened which were striking to me at the time and I learned about them a little bit later, a couple of days later mm. but obviously this was planned very carefully and um, remarkably creatively to pull this off apparently the intentions were to uh, storm the military um, installations around that area to take Israelis, members of the IDF, prisoner, and what have you. But they were so successful in breaking through the walls that after the first group got through, was intending to do that, a bunch of other people flooded through. We have to remember that Gaza, in fact, much of the Palestinian world, is unbelievably young. You know, the mean age of Gaza, I'm not sure I have this correct, but it's like 23 or 24, or something mm -hmm. like that. So you have an enormous number of young people with no place to go. You know, no, no political aspiration, no economic aspiration. This, of course, is what was so attractive about ISIS. You know, ISIS, if you wanted to join up, they would give you a, a world historical mm -hmm. purpose, defeat the West. They would give you a wife and they would give you an income. So it's happened over and over again in these desperate places. I thought, are we also looking here at uh, the young population of Gaza where longing to be a liberator, hmm. your people can turn as it festers, can turn into nihilism. Hmm. And I thought of two things. One was 1870 and following in Russia, where we had these amazing nihilistic movements. Dostoevsky writes about this so brilliantly. And I thought, I wonder if that's what we're seeing here, a move towards nihilism. And then I also thought of the 13th century um, and about that young boy, who was 16 years old that came before the French king and said he'd, he'd just spoken with Jesus Christ and he got a message from him saying that since the adults couldn't liberate Jerusalem, Jesus Christ has asked me to lead the children to mm -hmm. do it. And we had, three, we had two children's crusades mm -hmm. in the 13th century, which gathered up thousands of children managed to negotiate boats uh, so they could sail claiming that they'd raise their hands up and God would depart the sea like he did with Moses. We didn't hear about that first group. There's no record of it for about 15 years. When there finally is, um, many of them had drowned. Others had been uh, enslaved and none of them returned. So is there an element here 
in what has been in some sense perpetrated upon the Palestinian people of seeding the ground for a kind of children's crusade that is an involvement of the young mm -hmm. in a way where the only meaning you can find in life, given that you're listening to preaching all the time, this is what happened to mm -hmm. the young man in the 12th century, you're listening to preaching all the time. This happens in mosques as well, I'm sure in Palestine and around the world, where the preaching is riveted on the um, terrible plight of the Palestinian people. So what's the relationship between these kind of movements and the gifts of Islam? Islam, of course, means, among other things, peace and surrender. And is there any way of helping people to accept what unfolds in history and somehow or other come to terms with it? This is a huge problem for all of us, of course, and it's seems almost disingenuous to ask that of Israelis and to ask that of yes. Palestinians. Yeah. But like it or not, history asks that of us. Can we accept what is and can we find life in it? Can we pull life from death or do we still remain riveted in death? The third knot, and this is the one that we do deeply share in, is what is the relationship between Christian Zionism and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian Zionism, as you know, has an enormous reach, probably uh, more than one in 10 Americans mm -hmm. is part of that. Many in Canada are part of it. Mm -hmm. It is, of course, a, 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 a theological movement that you taught of some intimate connection to. Yeah. Goes back into the Brethren tradition in England. Good old John Darby. Yeah. <laughs> And it also, uh, it also seeded uh, the whole notion of the restoration of Jews to the land of Palestine. And then it started to be used by Christians for this based on their apocalyptic vision and their eschatology, because many evangelicals have an eschatology of time as opposed to the ancient church, which has an eschatology of being since the kingdom of God is here now. So that eschatology of time leads them, as you know, to say that the Jews must all return to Israel before Jesus Christ can come again. And when that happens, thanks be to God, 144,000 will be saved because they will become Christians, and the rest of them, alas, alas, will go to hell. So this has become an amazing convenience for a secular atheist Israeli government. Because they, of course, look at that theology and say, oh yeah, right, of course. But how can we use it? Yeah. And so I don't know the exact amounts here, but my understanding is that probably the vast majority of the funding for the settlers mm -hmm. in what was the boundaries of Gaza and, and, and the West Bank is funded by Christian Zionists in North America. <clears throat> so not only do we politically have, have things on our, our hands that we need to do the best we can to address with our governments, but we also have, uh, as part of our Christian community, a very peculiar kind of theology hmm which turns the Prince of Peace into, and his gospel, which reduces that to an instrument which can be used against those people that are also in the image and likeness of God, the mm. Palestinians. Yeah. So those are the three knots that Thank you so I'm much. looking about in a few of these cafes. Just as a way of, of, of trying to help people understand, here's, here's how this all got shaped and seeded, and in some sense why we're where we are in this moment. And these are maybe uh, 
knots that we need, wounds indeed, Mm -hmm. that we need to find ways to pour the oil of gladness on and soften up before we'll even be able to think about what might be done. So I'm at one of those cafes. That's I'm I'm just doing this like I, I'm doing this. Uh, I haven't been at one of those cafes. We get to speak with David here. But, so I'm going to ask a question in the Q and A afterwards, and I'm going to say you mentioned um, nihilism, and particularly in reference to young the young Palestinian population. Um, you know, many people like most of those kinds of words of philosophy and world and worldview and understanding. Um, we can be exhibiting things that we haven't heard the word before. What does it explain to me as somebody asking you a question at one of those cafes? What do you mean that, that someone has fallen into or moved towards nihilism? When you, um, <clears throat> when you have a utopian idea in your mind and your heart, when you wish, as Uncle Karl Marx wished, to um, bring about the um, complete freedom of the proletariat and destroy all hierarchy. When you have an aspiration which uh, is to liberate your people and when the circumstances have militated against that in such a cunning way and it has festered and Mm -hmm. festered since 1948 Mm -hmm. it is uh, a moment it seems to me where your your image of how things ought to be gets turned so completely inside out that the only thing you now want is destruction. Mm. And that includes the destruction of yourself. It is a profound, it is when the smell of blood is in your nostrils and your own self-preservation isn't even operating. It is only about laying waste the land. David, do you do you suspect that some of this <clears throat> some of this um, movement towards nihilism comes from potentially like a profound feeling of a lack of control, a lack of agency? Of course complete lack of agency and a giving up on it. Yeah. And, you know, when you, I saw, I saw in Al Jazeera an interview with a, a mother whose son had been released. I think he was in his early 20s, released from one of the uh, Israeli prisons on the West Bank. And uh, this was during the exchanges that took place. And she hugged him as any mother was. She had seemed to weep, weep a little bit, glad to see him, and spoke to the Al Jazeera journalist and expressed her delight at seeing him and that he was back. And then quickly she said, but you know, our destiny is martyrdom. His destiny is martyrdom. And I thought, oh, yeah. The first council of the early church under the Roman Empire during the height of one of the persecutions was called because many young men, mainly, and a few young women, got an appetite for martyrdom. An appetite for martyrdom. Think of it. Yeah, I've Not seen just some of those writings. An appetite for it. Yeah. If we get ourselves martyred, somehow or other, that gives us purpose. That gives us a historical meaning. It means we've had a, we've had an impact on life. Mm-hmm. What a dreadful thing for the landscape to offer you that and nothing more than that. And at that council, the bishops made it very clear: you are not 
an appetite for martyrdom is a weird kind of spiritual pride, hmm. a diseased kind of spiritual pride. You are not to walk into the jaws of the emperor. That doesn't mean you have to run, but it does mean you shouldn't make it easy. And you shouldn't see yourself as a sacrifice. Hmm. Yeah. Because there's no way of making sacrifice means to make sacred. That's not making anything sacred except death. So yeah. you have been I don't know why this came into my mind. I think it I think it came into my mind because of the pastoral element, like being with people in in circumstances where people are thinking through these things or even closer to you have been a connection spiritual advisor for Omar Cotter. For I've been no spiritual advisor to anybody. No? Okay, I'm going to keep using the term because we feel it for... Say, I may have called you that, David. Uh, <laughs> you, you were in, in consistent relationship and speaking with Omar Cotter. Um, th th that history must, must come to mind. And I know it's another a different conflict in some ways. Um, but how... I guess I'm using this example to what does it mean to be present for people across uh, the spectrum of experience or viewpoints um, through things like through things like this? Well, first of all, it's a gift. I mean, if 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 you have the if you are given the opportunity to be present to anyone in the midst of their joy or in the midst of their struggle, that's a, that's a gift that we, we are given. So, um, um, responding to that is, um, well, I mean, we say, don't we, don't we say responding to that's the gift of the Holy spirit. I mean, sure. Sure. <laughs> I mean yeah. respond to it, but I mean, I like people. I, I really like people. So that's why I uh, uh, love to engage them. I have been concerned about about young uh, right. young Muslims and Palestinians around the world and how this plays in them. I mean, I was very concerned as I watched what happened on October 7th. I mean, the first words out of my mouth were, this is going to be awful for Muslims. This is going to be awful for Jews. Yeah. It's awful for both. And, and so it, it, it's, and you mentioned earlier that sometimes this plays maybe even differently as, as your rabbi friend said in Israel, there is, and I suspect it's true in Palestine, mm -hmm. there are people that have much more, because they're, they're in the situation. Right. Mm -hmm. They are much more capable of reaching out. But being immigrants or being in another country, uh, like Canada and the United States, we all have fantasies about homelands. And, I mean, that's the immigrant mentality. And that's mm -hmm. a refugee's mentality, too. So that makes it doubly difficult to get at. And also you, your immediate skin is not in the game. Right. So that's, that's different too. Yeah. Incarnation makes a difference. I think that's what, like, as even, as I mentioned, Omar Cotter. So, and most people who are listening would know Omar Cotter was in a number of years ago, Guantanamo so. Bay for yes. a number of years. And um, so know the history there. This, and I love that you start with saying it's a gift and that there is, I mean, those of us in this kind of pastoral work, um, the dependence upon the Holy Spirit, and that's how we would say it, to be present with another. Um, so thank you so much. I, I, want, I noted down when you were speaking, because I felt, even for people listening, trying to navigate their way through this, or if people listening feel uh, depressed, and one of the things I've experienced in as as a pastor, I would say, like a, with that sensibility in the world, is it's kind of a compendium of things right now, a bunch of things put together, where whether it's like inflation, housing crisis, um, whatever it might be, political things that people are feeling, uh, and now war in the Middle East, as people used to say, or whatever, right? That there can be a sense where people, even if they don't feel they have skin in the game, 
they have a sense that the world is just unstable. Um, and some of the things we've taken for granted in these other, that nothing to do with what we're speaking about, the conflict we're speaking about, but that now it seems like everything is shaky. Um, and so you mentioned, so I, I noted it down because there's things to hold on to in, in the midst of speaking about these kinds of things. Um, you mentioned wonder and regard. Um, somehow in the midst of this, and for those, you know, whether you're coming from like a religious pastoral sensibility or not, some people are just really good at appreciating wonder and helping others to do the same. But wonder and regard, and then you said uh, as a prayer, in wisdom have you made it all. Glory to thee, O God. In wisdom have you made it all. Glory to thee, O God. That somehow we experience and connect with that wonder and regard and pray this kind of prayer even in the midst of even and particularly in the midst of this uncertainty and so we're grateful to speak with you about these kinds of things and glad that you're keeping doing these uh, philosopher cafes and such so i thought before we ended we would switch to hear about something that we've had connection with you as well over that is a little bit local for us here you've been out to sure where is it? Where is this place? Dudney, which is like past Dudney. mission. Dudney, which is past mission, which is you know, just a long way away from everything. Mm, Not it, really. It's a bit of a trek for um, us. There is an Orthodox monastery. Is yes. that the proper way of saying it? Um, and David helps to organize and run something there called the St. Macrina Center. Um, we've had some connection with it, learned a great deal. Yes, we went out last summer. And yeah, the yeah it was it was in the summer, right? And it was about yep. Saint Macrina, I think, an introductory session. Yes, David's mm-hmm. nodding his head. Yes, so I'm glad. <laughs> right. Well uh, done, Todd. <laughs> tell us about tell us about the Saint Macrina Center, I, and we might jump in if. Well, if first of all, she's one of your, she's one of your spiritual ancestors. You just didn't know her all that well. <laughs> <laughs> Got to know her a bit on that weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this takes us back to uh, to Cappadocia, modern day Turkey, to. Uh, the fifth century to one of the most remarkable families that, that we know of in Christian history. Uh, she was the eldest child and uh, two of her brothers, <clears throat> well, Basil, who we know as Basil the Great, mm-hmm. he'd gone off to Athens and studied philosophy and what have you, came back arrogant as noon. And she actually uh, rang his neck a little bit and turned him into a monk. And he became one of the great, one of the three great hierarchs of the, of the Christian East, honored in both the Western Church and the Eastern Church, wrote a brilliant book on the Holy Spirit and many, many other things. And then her other, uh, her other brother, Gregory of, of Nyssa, uh, who also was forced into being a bishop by Basil. Quite Basil was not the kind what of guy. What an older brother. He wanted to be friends with because he always made his way with you. He was brilliant, but I I would always like to keep a little distance from him. So Gregory of Nyssa is a marvelous theologian in the Christian East as well. But both of them had really studied at their sister's knee. And um, so we have named this little center uh, after her, in part because, as Gregory of Nyssa saw her, she was the new Socrates. Hmm. She was the new one to midwife all that's best in everybody that comes along the path. So <clears throat> there are two books about her. One is A Life of Her, uh, written by Gregory of Nyssa, and the other one is a dialogue he has with her on death and resurrection. And that dialogue takes place at her deathbed. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that dialogue, she is Socrates. He is the student. So we, in part, we formed this little center uh, in part in memory of a, a man, a wonderful medical doctor that had come to the monastery often and had eventually become Orthodox as well, but suffered greatly from depression. And um, so it's in part to honor his legacy and also the legacy of uh, my good friend, uh, mm-hmm. Trisha Lazar, who for years uh, taught 
uh, out of the monastery there and um, is himself a person that has an awful lot of Jeremiah in him. Mm. So needless to say, he's persona non grata often within the Orthodox world. He got along much better with evangelicals. Not that he liked evangelicals. <laughs> he liked to convert them. And he thought they were easy picking. Oh, there's so many so, layers there. <laughs> he loved them in that way. Uh, but he also had a deep, compassionate heart for people who were genuinely suffering and absolutely impatient with anybody who didn't have a proper regard for real suffering. Consequently, he became persona non grata among the clergy so often. Wow. In any case, it's also in part to to lay hold of his legacy. He's he's reaching the final stages of his life, and I wanted to have some way of for a few of us who have appreciated him so much to put something together so that we could continue to do work in this area. So we have a little website, uh, stmacrina.ca, um, and we do what I would call slow work. Mm-hmm. Kind of unlike your work. Well, we we're do pretty slow, slow too, but anyway. <laughs> work. So we do a symposium out at the monastery uh, the last week in July, which is associated with the feast day of the monastery, and the two of you were there for that. Yeah. And uh, this coming July, we're going to do it on what, what I've called the inner monasticism. Hmm. And um, <clears throat> we also do what we call occasional conversations, which are done at the last Sunday of the month. And this last year, we've been doing it on on uh, a series of modern Orthodox thinkers. Right. And I think, Todd, you joined in yeah, one the, of those where the, I... The Olivier Clement, yeah. Olivier Clement, this remarkable yeah. French thinker who was raised atheist, went to Asia spent time with Buddhists and Hindus and what have you, ended up back in Paris teaching at St. Sergius, marvelous command of the patristic tradition, yeah, such a beautiful spirit. I love him, of course, in part because he was not clergy. Yes, um, me, me too, I think. And, and I've yeah, read a lot of, of his stuff since that yeah. session. And yeah. So talked about him and another one called Paul of Dumakov, who's Russian by background, but also not clergy, but deeply interested in art and in, in, in the contemporary life, wrote a couple of marvelous books on love and what have you. And then more recently, uh, I did the last one on, and these are done by a variety of people. I did the last one on an Indian thinker that I've read since the, since the seventies periodically, Paul Mar Gregorius. He was at one point a president of the World Council of Churches and uh, has written a number of books. And I love the fact that those Indian folks that are Orthodox in Kerala, in Malabar, uh, since the church tradition says Thomas ended up there, right. the great apostle mm-hmm. of yeah. what I would call the patron saint of empiricism. Yeah. <laughs> doubt. Yeah. Uh, he ended up there and evangelized a dozen Brahmin families. So Christianity from the apostolic period was Brahmanic until the 17th century in oh, India. But that East Syrian tradition looked, it really severed themselves largely from Greece. They looked towards Persia a bit and then towards dialogue with Hindus and Buddhists. So Margaret Gregorius is a wonderful thinker who's doing the Christian tradition in a different kind of dialogical yeah. setting. So I've, I've liked him very much. That's fantastic. So we do these, and then we do a, a St. Macrina seminar twice a year. We'll be doing it this spring. And we use a text, and we meet for two hours every day of a week for five, five days, and we read that text. People are asked to read it ahead of time. These are small, where we seek to deeply engage a classical text. So this will be St. Athanasius's mm. On the Incarnation that we'll mm. do in the in the spring, and then in the fall we'll have another one and do it on Maximus the Confessor's oh, Mysticovia wow. of the Church. So these are um, the little things that we do, but the effort here isn't to draw a crowd, it's to try and have a few of us slow down and 
give attention hmm. and do it in an enduring kind of way. Uh, make it part of the pattern of our life to do this kind of thinking and reflecting together. So it's a it's a pleasure. Yeah, I've I'm glad you come. Yeah, I've enjoyed every everything I've, I've connected with it with Saint Macrina, and it's spurred me on to you know delve delve deeper or to get to know people I hadn't known before. Um, I mean, they belong I, to you. You know, they belong to you. I mean. Yeah. The full name of this, I mean, we usually call it the St. Macrina Center. Yeah. Sometimes it's called the St. Macrina Orthodox Center. But the truth of the matter is, orthodoxy is not a church. That's it's right. just part of it. It's the tradition. And it belongs to all of us. It doesn't It doesn't even belong to the church, because right. it's not really about that. It's about being a human being. Hmm. It's an insights on being a human being. So It is one of the things of, like, you know, Allison, I'm thinking we connect with people who are doing work that is so contemporary or something right like the church and culture today and the yeah, things yeah. that are happening or <laughs> evangelicalism or should we say you know post-evangelicalism or whatever and all the things deconstruction and all these things there there are times and i think i feel it this way often um where you can think of people or issues or whatever but think of people and you say oh you should meet maximus or you know you should you should meet gregory um i hadn't met saint macrina until this i'd heard of gregory of course and basil but yes. not saint macrina which of course doesn't make a lot of sense eh, um I, I think i can maybe trace why that might yeah be. i think i could probably do the same <laughs> but that's the kind of energy of this it's not directly saying here's how this person relates to the you know following five contemporary issues but if you have ears to hear uh there's something so hopeful well, yeah and, and if Go ahead, Alice. Oh, I was going to say, if you have care and attention and you you want to, like, dedicate some time to stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 like you said, David, it, it's slow in in a way that I think is a little subversive in ah, nice, how nice uh, so much of culture tends to operate. Well, we are trying to do the little bit that we can do to see that the kind of siloed ideological thinking that pervades parades the church as well as the culture isn't the only game in town yes amen <laughs> well and for those listening i mean it's not everybody and that's okay it's maybe not even most but i know there are people listening who are like maybe i should like pursue some of this maybe you know the idea of reading like ancient texts or some of the and i i find this such a wonderful truth there are also enough just strange stories in oh, these yeah. things. Oh yeah, super weird. <laughs> and one day this <laughs> happened, and you're like, "What?" And, and that kind of keeps you going through some I of mean, this stuff. I mean, I've really liked learning about like. There's so much in in my own personal faith that I've I've wanted to like almost remystify. That go like, no, as a Christian, I do profess to believe in t in some weird things. Yeah, and I think so much of my evangelical upbringing, at least in the community that I was a part of really sought to make everything rational and logical. And yeah. I've really appreciated having so much more that I experience, but can't necessarily always articulate very well. Yeah. That I, I've enjoyed well, that and also aspect. And everything now, yes. like everything today, like what's our stance on this issue or what's our, and, and you go back to these uh, writers, thinkers, people who were highly influential and have, and you're reminded of a couple of things. First of all, there's such a thing as Christian history, which lots of various branches of the church, you know, it was the New Testament and then today. Um, and and then secondly, because it's not, it's not like we're writing this thing in response to what's happening in Alberta right now on this issue. You know what I mean? You do have to listen in ways that help you to see humanity and God in ways that help you out of these silos. Mm -hmm. If you if you're if you're open. To, to be yes. you know, let out of those silos. So, David, one, uh, of, the, yeah. one of the gifts yeah. of, the, of, I think, slow reading, and often we need to do this together. You know, I, I take a leaf out of the Jewish world. Yes. You should never read the scripture by yourself. You may think you know what it means, and that'll be disastrous. And you should never read the great literature of the church fathers by yourself. You should read it with people so that. Because this is, on the one hand, you flag this, it is a way of tempering 
the way in which we end up defining things in terms of particular season of life or particular historical moments. So it does temper that. But I'll tell you, it transforms it. It transfigures it. That's what's so important about it. It's not that it ignores it. It changes the terms of reference around it. And in that way, it helps us pull life from death. Wow, fantastic. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for your time here, David. And we always like um, company with you, conversation with you. And of course, like any conversation like this, um, it lives after this. And and we hope that those who are listening and working through these things, that there will be uh, pieces of what you've heard in listening to this conversation that help you and inform you. And I'll close with that again. Well, first, we'll put this together. Um, remember the faces of people uh, as you started with remember the faces of people and then wonder and regard dear God in wisdom have you made it all glory to thee O God thank you David for joining us blessings thanks Allison thanks Todd Take thank care. you so much David Rector's Cupboard is a production of Reflector Project and is hosted and produced by Todd Weeb, Allison Williams, and Amanda Mina. Our cupboard master is Ken Bell. Rector's Cupboard is made possible by the generous support of donors. Check out rectorscupboard.ca for past episodes, events, and how you can help fund the podcast. You can also support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which helps other people find us. Thanks for listening. <laughs>